0: welcome to another episode of the Blind Shots Podcast. I'm your host, David Hill, coming to you from the 7th tee box at Kearney Hill Golf Links. Probably the origin of more great golf photographs than any other single spot in Lexington, Kentucky. And this is episode 25. Today's episode is another in my series of discussions about public golf in America. This version is a special treat. So I've got on tap a wide-ranging discussion with one of the smartest, most intriguingly credentialed people working in golf. Mike McCartan, co-founder of the National Links Trust. With a degree in economics and a master's in landscape architecture, experience as a working golf course designer and builder with Renaissance Golf, and most importantly, being a lifelong golf tragic, Mike possesses the ability to think about golf in romantic, technical, financial, and political terms, perhaps a rare combination even among the golf course architecture crowd. We discussed the National Links Trust and what that organization is doing and plans to do with the public golf courses in Washington, D.C., and what role nostalgia and the ability to tell a story play in making a case to decision makers that may lack an emotional investment in what Mike would describe as a community asset, not just a golf course. Some of the ground we cover is exclusive to our nation's capital and its unique political and power structures, but there are also plenty of thoughts that may scale up and extrapolate out to municipalities and parks across the nation. Before we get to my talk with Mike, a reminder that the Blind Shots podcast is a member of the Talking Golf Network of Shows, which you can find at TalkingGolf.com, one G please, where you'll find some of the best golf podcasts made. I'd urge you to check out the latest edition of the Good Good Golf Podcast, where hosts Rod Morey and Adrian Logue talk with architect Arlie Cruz, talking about, among other things that fascinate me, the economics and ethics of new golf course construction versus golf course remodeling and renovation at a time when developable land and redevelopment in and around cities puts an enormous premium on vacant land. They make it sound much more interesting than I just did, so please check it out. You can find the Good Good Golf Podcast wherever your podcast feed is serviced. A reminder, you can interact with this show on Twitter at Pod as well as on Instagram, and I'd encourage you to do so. The Blind Shots Podcast is sponsored by me, David Hill. In addition to playing, talking, and writing about golf, I'm a licensed Kentucky realtor with Rector Hayden Realtors. I work with homeowners buying and selling their homes, and also work with investors and businesses on commercial properties here in Central Kentucky. You can find my contact information at davidhill.rhr.com. If you want advice navigating these times in the real estate market, buy me a virtual cup of coffee and let's talk about it. And with that, we'll get on with the interview with Mike. From National Links Trust. While you're listening to us, or right afterwards, please head to their website and learn more about the project at nationallinkstrust.com. There'll be links in the show notes to their homepage, to their team page where you can learn more about Mike and the rest of the crew, and most importantly, links to the donate and gear pages. They have some incredible merchandise available that they sell to help fund their mission. Give it a look, pick yourself out something nice, please. And with that, here's our discussion. Mike McCartin. Golf has had such a nice boom in 2020 once everything opened up, um, but before then, I felt like we were in a pretty consistent climate of pressure on yeah. public golf uh, in the what was the you know the beginnings of the post-Tiger boom. Um, you are in a unique place. You went from master's thesis on East Potomac Park to having – basically winning a contract to uh, help run the place through yeah. the National Links Trust. So um, I guess we'll start where all stories start at the beginning. If, briefly, if you can just give me an overview of how, how kind of that dream came to fruition.
1: Sure. I mean really if we want to start at the beginning, uh, I was – kid uh, going with my dad to the driving range with my um, brothers, and it's really an excuse to get us out of the house and, um, and and out of my mom's hair. And so we'd sit behind him at the East Potomac Driving Range and watching hit balls, and that led to you know my own love of the game, learning at the range, going to play. Uh, nine holes on the red and white course uh, at East Potomac, which are a part three and an executive length course and just kind of moving my way up um, to the blue course, which is an 18 hole um, course. And, um, you know, I, I think that really sparked an interest in golf and, you know, uh, just kind of getting into, um, you know, the world of, of uh you know, getting to see what's out there in, in terms of the differences between courses. And, um, and, and I think for however that happened, sparked an interest in golf course design and, um, eventually led to me being, um, you know, uh, in, in grad school working for Tom Doak, um, while I was in school and, uh, teaching a course on golf architecture and eventually writing my thesis about East Potomac, um, and, and what I thought I was writing about was, you know, public golf and, and municipal golf, affordable golf, and why it sh- you know, in my mind, it should be better. There's nothing about affordable golf that doesn't mean the golf course can't be interesting. And yet that d- didn't seem to be the way that, you know, the, the world worked. Um, and and so the idea was like take a really basic course and, and talk about how you might make it more interesting while still affordable. And it turns out that while East Potomac is kind of a basic course now, um, it wasn't um, when it was originally designed. And so that kind of brings me to the start of this particular story.
0: Well, let I want to flesh out something you just said there. No. When you were really once you got into the profession of architecture and, and studying it, uh, as you're talking about, how did public golf courses kind of end up in a position where they were just so basic? I mean, Thomas talks about it in Golf Architecture from a hundred years ago that God bless those those poor souls playing these you know dirt covered hard pan municipal tracks, you know labor of love and and yeah. you know Godspeed. So how did it? I guess that kind of divide or, or were you able to discover how we ended up on this this part of the road?
1: Yeah. You know what's interesting about that is that I definitely think there's a difference between conditioning and the interest of the golf course. Because, I mean, people would line up to play Bethpage Black before the renovations and it was apparently in terrible shape and kind of that hard pan and everything. But people loved it because it was – a challenging and interesting course. And you could see through the, the maintenance to like the bones underneath it or whatever. So I do think that some of this is just kind of the conflation of, 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 you know, smaller maintenance budgets and, um, you know, and the quality of the golf course. But at the same time, I, re- I think that there's this thought that, Golf courses that are meant, you know, to be like the entry level are also meant to be kind of free of challenge and, you know, something that anybody can get around really easily. Um, When in my mind, that doesn't have to mean something, you know, that's that's a noble cause, right? Like not losing golf balls and being able to get around a course is important. Yes. Kind of yeah. everywhere. But in particular at courses where you're going to have people with a wide range of abilities. But at the same time, you can have those things and have an interesting golf course by, you know, just by the simple thing of having a, a really you know well contoured green or something like that. Um well, that's the part that I think that was missing in the construction of public golf, um, you know, in kind of the boom times of the you know 1940s through the eighties when a lot of these kind of municipal courses were built. I think the idea was let's, let's build places for people to play, um, and help them get around really fast. But they were missing that element of interesting design that could be layered on top of that.
0: At the at the peak, do you think golf was being built so fast that you just ended up with a lot of low bidders on RFPs and cities didn't know the difference?
1: I think there's I think there's some of that. I think um I think that there was it partly due to the era in which a lot of these courses were built. Like I said, I think once you're out of the golden age of golf course design and into the, the 40s, 50s, 50s in particular, 50s, 60s, you're getting um yeah, there's a lot of courses being built and also a um, new um, new implements to build with with bulldozers and, you know, large machinery. And the idea, I mean, not to not to broaden this out too much, but I mean, there's a time there where, you know, suburbs were being kind of replicated all around the country. And it's more about mass production than it is about the, you know, the unique aspects of, of, of you know, what you're building. And um, I think some of that bled into the golf course world, or at least you could make the argument that that's the case. I, I can't speak for the people who are actually building the courses at the time.
0: Cool. Do you think – talk to me, I guess, a little bit more about East Potomac. It, it, tell me about what it began because it's got a fascinating story and a fascinating yeah. history. So tell me a little bit about how it began and then what what it was when you remember seeing it by the time you came along.
1: Yeah, so – for, you got to start with the site. Um, it's a piece of reclaimed land in the Potomac River. Um, it's a peninsula, and the whole reason behind reclaiming it was to provide kind of a safe harbor for boats to um, dock in the area. And and it's actually a massive um, engineering project done by the Army Corps of Engineers back um, at the under the guidance of the McMillan Plan, which guided a lot of the development of Washington D.C. And, um, you know, where all the cherry blossoms are in the city, the Tidal Basin, um, and it's part of the monumental core of the city where the um, Jefferson Memorial is, that space, which is really iconic now, was constructed to be able to flush out um, periodically using, um, you know, water that collects in the Tidal Basin, the, the area called the Washington Channel, which is created by the construction of East Potomac park okay so it's, it's part of this big engineering solution to how to get boats in close to the city at a time when that was really important um so it's a it, it's a you know being reclaimed it's it's a it's basically a flat piece of um man-made land in the potomac river and the idea was that it could be a center for active recreation um in the city and a golf course was a big part of that so at the time um, the people in charge of developing that area for active recreation um, reached out to Walter Travis, who was in the area building Columbia Country Club in um, the D.C. suburbs at the time and engaged him to build the course. And again, there's no um, there's not a lot of detail about Travis's thoughts at the time, but it's pretty easy to imagine that when he was presented with this flat piece of land that his, you know, his thoughts went to St. Andrew's. Um, and trying to make you know the most out of what's uh, generally would be a weakness, like that flatness, and turn that into something that's an asset. And so, what he did was basically try to you know rumple up the land as much as possible and build a course that uh, was reversible, like the like the old course, so that you could play it um, clockwise, cl- clockwise on one day and then turn around and play it backwards counterclockwise the, the next. And it basically makes for, you know, a space that could feel like a totally different golf course from day to day. Um, And, you know, as part of that design, he built a ton, a really complex bunkering scheme, a lot of, you know, contours on the, you know, one foot to 10 foot range. um, A lot of kind of ground game interest and, and, and really interesting greens that could be played from both directions. And so, at the time, and if it still existed today, it would be totally unique in the world of American golf for sure. Um, but kind of a, a cousin to the old course, which is a really cool place to be, it, and it's got a lot of similarities in terms of kind of starting close to downtown and moving away from the city and then coming back, and a lot of things that make St. Andrew have St. Andrews have a really great sense of place would have been shared by um, by uh, the, the East Potomac course as it originally existed. And, and then basically over over time through that same era, the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and the war was not a great influence on, on this either. But, um, you know, the course was kind of tweaked and then wholesale changed. So it kind of bulldozed out of existence. Um, you know, the, the, instead of playing for two directions, um, as it did through the 1940s, it was changed to just being played in one direction, um, all the greens were adjusted so that they worked only in the one direction the course was being played. The um, the the property built a driving range, and the driving range impacted a couple holes and changed the routing a little bit. And by the time I saw it, as you know, a, an eight-year-old. Uh, it was, it was what you It's kind of that image of what you'd expect of, of a municipal course. It was that hard pan, not a lot of interest to the course at all. And, um, round, you know, what greens. Consider, yeah, round <laughs> greens, what you consider just kind of like your entry level golf course when that couldn't be further from the truth when it was, when it was built, um, back in, in 1918.
0: Was it always now? Today, it's owned by the National Parks Service. Was yeah. that always, was it always an interior project, or was it? Does it have a history on that side? That's
1: well, it's got a great um, you know kind of cultural and social history, but you can basically trace it back to um, you know the equivalent of being owned by the National Park Service for for the vast majority of its existence in the first few years, I think it was built by DC, but quickly every, all of the major parks in DC were transferred to the federal government, including the golf course. And then it was department of interior. And then the national park service wasn't even, you know, in existence at that time,
0: but, but there's a through line from that time to, to now. Wait, but for people that don't know, touch on that cultural history you referenced a little bit.
1: Sure. Um, so, I mean, uh, one of the ways in which, and first of all, and this is the case in a lot of um, cities, East Potomac was kind of a flagship golf course um, for the city at a time when there weren't a lot of private courses even around. And so it was a lot of cities, including Cobb's Creek in Philadelphia, um, you know, New York had several municipal courses. The courses weren't being built to be those basic golf courses; they were built to be something that would teach you know, the masses to be great golfers. The idea was that by building a great course, you'd create great golfers, which is totally different than the way public golf evolved after that. Um, And so it it was wildly popular when the course opened and through the thirties. I mean, the, um, the East Potomac did over a hundred thousand rounds a year. I mean, it was crazy busy and really popular with, Everybody from you know your normal everyday golfer to presidents, politicians, it was, it was uh, really well thought of. It hosted the 1923 U.S. Public Links um, tournament, which was the second one ever. Um, and you know that's kind of the the golfing origin um, on a on a different level. Um, the, in the uh, the civil rights era, the uh, East Potomac course and all of the courses in D.C. played a big role in kind of the desegregation of um, public space in D.C. at a time when D.C. was segregated with, um, you know, by as like kind of a as a city the, with the golf with the golf courses being um, federal land. Um, the Department of the Interior protected the rights of, of all Americans to play the courses. And um, there were you know, pretty contentious fights over the rights of African Americans to play golf um, at East Potomac, in particular. And and to the you know credit of the Department of the Interior, um, a lot of effort went into um, ensuring that you know the safe uh, golfing uh, of um, African American citizens at um, the East Potomac course. And then, of course, there's the Um, kind of parallel history of Langston, which was one of the first golf courses built for African-Americans, you know, in the country, it ended up being kind of a, um, it was a kind of compromised solution to um, what was a difficult problem in the city at the time, which was uh, basically everywhere else was segregated. How do we, create a space for African-Americans to be able to play golf. And the solution at the time was was we'll build kind of a a course dedicated to African-Americans. Of course, that's not, you know, nearly as good as actually sharing the spaces that, you know, that for everybody to play. Um, and the park service or the department of the interior was good about helping to make that happen when, um, when challenged, when the status quo was challenged. But, um, you know the evolution of Langston reflects the era in which it was built, um, and you know, and it has a great you know history of African American golf um, you know itself that's that's you know developed there, and even has uh, roots in courses in the city that preexisted Langston all the way back into the early 1920s.
0: Yeah, I think it's easy for people now that don't have a maybe an appreciation for how Southern dc was and everything around dc was um you know northern virginia has become its own metroplex but that was that was my wife is from dc my mom is from the dc area um uh, yeah it was a, a not that long ago it was a very different cultural scene um yeah. when people are talking about golf course you mentioned what kind of an important role that they had historically did I want to know if that sort of goodwill endured or maybe how long it endured because the one of the big things you see now with when there are fights with municipalities when there's something when the city councils think about closing a course yeah. um, people show up and and the the, the golfers that want to keep it or even maybe people that don't even play golf but they have this nostalgia. That's the the number one reason they can give somebody. They don't come armed with data. Uh, They come armed with, hey, that's where I learned the game and my grandkids ought to have the same opportunity, that sort of thing. Um, By the time modern day rolls around, what kind of, I guess what kind of shape, what kind of uh, spirit, I guess, endured around the the public courses there in D.C. East Potomac and Langston.
1: Well, I think the, the interesting part is that despite the courses kind of going downhill in terms of a lack of continued investment in the in the properties, the role and the popularity of the courses in the city always stayed very strong, um, especially at, at East Potomac. Um, the the amount of play there has, has been consistently tremendous. And, um, you know, the, the, the golf courses have been really well used and, and, and it's really played the role as the gateway to golf for tons and tons of people in the area. And I think that state that is true, you know, straight through to today and will be true into the future. I mean, there's just no better situated set of golf courses, you know, in terms of a metro area than, than these three are in DC, um, you know, Langston has had some threats to its existence over time, um, with the development of the RFK stadium, um, site and, you know, desire to expand out there. Uh, there've been certain times where, you know, there that's threatened to overwhelm the course, which is right next to the stadium. Um, but it's managed to, to hang in there, and um, now all the courses are on the National Register of Historic Places, They're, um, they are very well documented uh, by the National Park Service in terms of their histories and, and the significance to the community, and um, yeah, I don't, I don't see the role of um, kind of the entry point to golf uh, changing for the courses, and, and I, in fact, it's probably strengthening, um, yeah, it's been good for it.
0: Good. Well, how does – talk to me a little bit about the uh, the National Links Trust and how that project got going and then how that got married up um, it, to where we are in current day, I guess.
1: Yeah. Um, so National Links Trust got started because, you know, obviously uh, I keep pretty close tabs on what's going on at the courses and – uh, one day, I was out at Rock Creek and saw a note on their door saying that the, you know, that the current operator was in talks with um, a group to put in place a long-term lease for um, for the golf courses with the with the National Park Service, which would be a different setup than had previously existed. And so, <clears throat> reached out to that group, which was called the Federal City Council, to kind of try and find out what was going on. And by the time I reached out, the letter was kind of outdated. It was actually a process that had gone on behind the scenes for a while. Um, There was a a desire, which is totally right, um, that the golf courses needed a different management structure in order to succeed. They needed the freedom to make um, larger scale capital investments and that the – process with which that could happen with the park service under a concessions contract, which is what was there before, just wasn't ever going to work for, for a golf course. And, um, and so to their credit, federal city council, um, which is a kind of chamber of commerce type um, group in DC had reached out to um, the park service about um, taking over the courses via a lease that would allow for those investments, and and so they work together to try and hammer out the details of the lease. And at some point in that process, the Park Service um, basically said that they they couldn't go down that path without more of a public process. It couldn't be a a sole source uh, deal.
0: Right. No and bid. So, no bid contract is a, a dirty word to a lot of yeah. people.
1: Great. <clears throat> right. So. At that point, the process went to a formal RFP, a public RFP. And it was really at that point that I reached out to federal city council who said that, you know, the the RFP was happening. And so uh, a group of friends um, of mine um, started talking about just how little people in D.C. really even knew about the histories of the courses and how important that really should be. Um, to inform what happens out there in the future. Because there are so many, you could come up with hundreds of ideas for what should happen at these courses and all of them would be valid, um, or you know some more valid than others, but hard to decide amongst all of those paths. But when you can connect it to something that already existed there, had a rich history, and was um, widely regarded as great, it's just a much more simple and direct path to getting somewhere that would be, you know, a, a, a huge positive for the future of the courses. And so what we thought we could do was just form a group, which became the National Links Trust, to tell the stories of the three courses and, and inform whoever was going to take over, you know, build build some kind of public momentum behind the idea that, Restoring the courses was the way to go, and not, you know, blowing them up and doing something new. I mean, this is a fifty, you know, a fifty-year lease. If it if something good doesn't happen now,
0: it's never going to happen. It's never
1: going to happen, right? So that was basically the the thought. And then, as we started National Trust and started trying to tell the stories, we met a little bit more with groups that were looking to get involved with RFP. And it never quite felt that anyone was going to go down that path. Um, and so we, you know, uh, Will Smith, the co-founder of National Link Trust, and I um, have spent, uh, you know, a, a long time in the golf industry, in particular in golf course design and construction. And we thought, well, maybe we could put together a team with our contacts that would be pretty compelling and be the right group of people to execute on that restoration and and you know bringing back the history of the courses um, which is what we ended up doing
0: yeah. When someone looks at the roster, looks at the the website of the National Links Trust, you've got a fairly you've got a diverse board, you've got interest from you know you don't just have a bunch of golf course operators there. Talk to me a little bit about what it took to kind of get everybody under the same tent, and was it. Uh, more of a marketing and sales effort that you and will had to do, or were people kind of coming to you and say, Hey, I heard, you know, that you've got something going on with, um, you know, you're looking at these courses in DC, what can I do to help? What did that kind of effort look like?
1: Well, I think what got us the instant credibility was going to, I mean, Will and I both worked for Tom Doak. Will worked and is close with Gil Hans. Um, Bo Welling's number two guy was on my thesis committee at the University of Georgia. Um, You know, Will knows Mike Kaiser pretty well. So once we told the stories to those guys and got their buy-in that they wanted to be a part of it, um, being able to go out and say, Hey, we've, this is our team. This is what we want to bring to DC by being able to say that. um, And, and, you know, it communicates something about what the end product would be that we couldn't communicate with all the words, you know, at our disposal. Like it's just it's very exciting to say, you know, Tom Doak, Gil Hance, Bo Welling, Mike Kaiser, and you know, to a certain subset of people, that's just it's about as good as it can be,
0: right? Um, right. But on the same token. There's a big group outside that subset. Sure. So, so <laughs> how did the education process go with the decision makers? So what, what it did, though, was
1: it, it generated a lot of enthusiasm amongst the subset of people who would care, right? Because totally agree with like the golf nerd subset is, you know, especially on the design side, it's not huge, but it's really passionate. Right. So by being able to say that we were able to attract a lot of people who were, just really wanting to do whatever they could to help us along. And that kind of formed the core of our initial team. And then, I mean, from that point, it's been kind of a snowball picking up speed going down, you know, downhill. It's um, so a lot of people upon hearing the stories of the courses and understanding um, the role of the courses in the community and the team that we've assembled you know, have, have reached out wanting to be a part of it. And so it's, it's really been, um, you know, trying to, uh, figure out, well, first of all, incorporate everybody and, and in, in a meaningful way and figure out ways to, to, you know, use everybody's strengths to the benefit of the project. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's kind of amazing. I mean, I guess I'm, I'm leaving out, uh, the, the other, major subset of people who've got involved, which are people who share backgrounds at the courses like I have, um, you know, who've, who've been involved, whether with the first tee or just learning golf at these courses, um, and just have, you know, an undying love for them that they want to give back to. And, and that's another kind of major component of, of why this thing has legs,
0: um, a small group of very passionate people focused uh, is the only group of people that's ever gotten anything done in the history of the world. So don't don't discount that too much. That's a major part of the story. Um, one aspect as I've been kind of following this project and thinking about it, you mentioned – I'm glad you kind of featured Langston because one of the things that goes on in other metro areas around the country – very rarely is the golf course the what the economist would call the highest best use of land. Okay, you, you're an economics guy. You understand that there are are pressures here. Were these courses ever? Do you think in in serious developer danger repurposing? Uh, East Potomac, I guess, is kind of special because it's literally it's right in the middle of the river. You're not gonna you're not gonna do Roosevelt Island in D.C. Um, but that's something I see people kind of struggling with as you know, land prices, housing prices keep going up. Um, it's, it's more difficult sometimes to justify to a politician, to a decision-maker, to a parks and rec department sometimes. Um, so maybe talk a little bit about the uniqueness there and if you've encountered that elsewhere, sort of the, the conflicts of you know, the, what is now the reality of the housing market.
1: Yeah, well, I, I have to say that I think that the 3D DC courses might exist a little bit outside of those typical debates because they're all part of national parks. Right. And, and, and you're right, they're all in kind of unique locations where development of that nature, it was never and will never happen. Though I will say, as we mentioned earlier, Langston, relative to the other two, was a little bit more in the crosshairs of development at different times. And I think is on very solid ground now. Um, but escaped a couple of close shaves in the past. Um, generally I think the story of golf and it's hard when you're living it in the moment, but the story of golf has, has involved a lot of this where, you know, population pressures have pushed courses further and further out over time. So it's not surprising that this stuff would would happen. Where it's frustrating is when it's a municipality and the golf courses represent the closest and most accessible and most affordable golf in an area. And if it goes away, then you, you lose that feeder system that gets people involved in golf in, in the beginning. And I think that can that can really have a negative effect on the game. But I don't know if I have an excellent, um, solution for that. I think it's, it's a natural thing to happen. And, and I think the, if if I were going to say kind of ways in which you might keep that at bay, it, it involves something that I would argue for anyway, which is that, you know, figure, figure out ways to get more people enjoying those properties, um, beyond golf. Right. And I think there's a lot of, um, a lot of good examples of that. I I think a lot of it revolves around stuff that the DC courses already do well, which is provide just a really welcoming, inclusive place where you could just go to hang out and be outdoors, um, and, and, And that's enough reason to be there, you know, golf or no golf, um, and, and expose more people to why the places are special. And and that can be a food and beverage thing or just a kind of oasis in the city type thing. Um, but then, then start weaving in, um, you know, hiking and opportunities to, to use the property that extend beyond golf but are complementary to do golf existing there and then i think you're kind of on to something that ends up a little more um palatable to the community and is the type of thing that is not you know it's it's done elsewhere in the world it's just not done here as much in the us
0: right our, our sordid history of yeah there there's a there's plenty of daylight between uh the everyman golf and uh, the most exclusive clubs, right? We are not we're not the Scotland model, the right to roam and uh, visitors and, and visitor fees. How far from the city core do you have to get in D.C. to get really decent, what I'd call daily fee play? You know, one of the one of the issues I think municipal golf faces in a lot of towns is that you literally have an apples to apples. Competition down the street of maybe a private operator or somebody wanting to be a private operator, saying, "Hey, I'm I'm competing against a subsidy," um, and I was just curious what how the DC scene kind of sets up. Um.
1: Yeah, you have to go pretty far out before you're getting to privately owned public golf courses. Uh, there are there's a very good um, county system, uh, like a county golf course system in Montgomery County, Maryland. And a pretty good one in Fairfax County, Virginia, um, and and Prince George's County as well in Maryland. So there's there's some public golf that's relatively close in, but I don't think much of it is privately owned. Um, And certainly, I mean, you can't get any more central than the three DC courses, but you, you you tend to once you're past the the next couple close in county owned courses, even for the the rest of the public golf scene in the area, you're driving pretty far out, out of the area, um, you know, to get to get to the golf, especially if you live in the city. So, um, you know, certainly there's not as much of a of an apples to apples. Absolutely for the D.C. courses and even for the, you know, the closer in county owned courses where there's some private competition that that close to it i mean you have to you have to get like 30 miles outside of the city before you're really incorporating much of the private owned
0: golf course um you know spectrum and for those who have never been to dc or never driven in dc 30 miles is not 30 minutes no yeah
1: yeah yeah Um, yeah, you can be on the wrong side of that too and 30 miles from the from downtown is 50 miles
0: right (laughs) right um If you were you're an architect, you're in the the golf construction business. Uh, What are the things? I guess when maybe cities are considering the fight or flight of their golf, aside from just the bean counting, the you know what level of profitability is it when someone is you know east potomac langston the dc courses have a history and that's always going to be part of a story but what um if you had someone's ear you say here's what the things you ought to be considering um when you're evaluating kind of what to make of the the, a publicly owned golf course what are some things that you would like you know if you had your choice people would look at yeah
1: um i think Connection to the, the the connection to the community, the ability to um, function as kind of a community center for all sorts of activities, um, whether they be kind of youth focused or workforce development focused, um, you know, I, I think that's a big place where there are, are plenty of programs doing great work um, in those areas, um, but but kind of talking about uh, or doing a better job of communicating the benefits of that and the existence of that or, or kind of replicating what works in certain areas elsewhere is, is, is something that, you know, can be done better and become um, something that's more well-known for, you know, why the golf course is a benefit uh, in that benefit to the community. Um, Then then I think it it gets into, yeah, sharing space and, um, and the fact that like golf is a, you know, an outdoor sport where people are getting exercise and it's, you know, saving green space for the area. Um, It's just that where that argument has a weak point is that it, you know, the argument is it's only for a select few. Right. And I think figuring out ways to, to show that's not really the case is the, is the key
0: there. Right. You know, there are, there are only so many Tory Pines. There are only so many Chambers Bays, you know, that are going to be tourist destinations. And, yep. um, you know, when you've got when you've got clubs, I think you're right. The perception is always bad. They see fence people. The general public sees fences, and uh, you know, kind of a what I guess a monoculture, you know, of what the, of what the guys of what frankly the men in the parking lot look like. Great. Uh, and that's always going to be that. That's a golf problem, not necessarily a municipality problem. But yes, the the messaging, of course, of saying that's not, you know, that's not all we are, is always going to be a struggle. Is always, you know, has been a struggle. Um, what would be some of the lessons from the your National Lakes Trust experience, going through this whole process and looking back, um, it just far as a kind of on a thirty thousand foot level of approaching. Historic preservation of community assets of golf courses. You know, I'm not naive enough to think every golf course needs to exist. There are some dog babies out there. There are some things that are uh, unprofitable uh, that may, you know, that when you reasonably look at the the cost benefit analysis, maybe it's better to convert it. But if someone's got a – if a concerned golfer is listening to this and they think their, their course is at risk, um, what are some lessons they could draw from your guys' experience um, to maybe get somebody's ear and start – if somebody wanted to do a grassroots movement, what would be the first couple of things they do?
1: Well, I mean every, every situation is different, but I think I've learned most here in D.C. is that – there are so many people that care for these courses, and by kind of banding together, you can make a pretty powerful voice in support of, of golf. And then it's about how delivery, how to deliver the message. I mean, our audience here, um, again, the courses are not in danger, but our audience was the National Park Service, and. You know, I was, in history and historic preservation is of utmost importance to them. So being able to tell this story in the context of the histories of the, of the golf courses, which was what we wanted to do in the first place anyway, really resonated with the Park Service and, and was the, the right story to tell. Um, and I, I think part of it is, is probably understanding what is the right story to tell to the audience that um you know you're trying to communicate to in order to put the golf course in the best position to succeed in the long term and and I I suspect that that story is not always the same right so what worked in DC may have that applicability somewhere else it's like if you have a child and somebody comes and tells you that you need to do the x y and z to get them to sleep like 9 times out of the 10 that that doesn't work for your kid, right? But, but one time <laughs> out of 10, it will, and then it's super valuable. So um, I, I, I know how to relate what we've learned here in DC, but I, I, I do think that each situation is going to require its own approach. But it's just, I think there are a lot of good reasons for golf to exist and continue to thrive, especially on the municipal level around around the country. And, and it's about picking the right story, um, and, and putting together all those stories to make the compelling case, given the conditions that you're dealing with. Um, so, I, I know that's that's not a, a direct answer, but but I think you know what we've learned here in D.C. is that we have more stories to tell about why these places are special and great than than it's easy to communicate in a, any one setting. And instead, it's about yeah, picking those three or four things that will resonate and talking about those things, and then for the next person that you meet, it might be three different things.
0: Yeah, I don't. You're not making it sound like I can boil this down to a PowerPoint presentation.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I at least don't have that yet, and and uh, you know, I'm I'm. If you have ideas about how to do that, I'm, I'm all for it. <laughs> what
0: is the state of what's the state of the golf courses right now? Where are you guys in your process? We, so we took over on October
1: 5th, so we're just over two months into it. Um, we're really at a point where we're um, we're kicking off the planning process because what we're trying to do is renovate basically every square inch of each of the three properties. And, and while we're trying to put back what was there, it doesn't exist now, so it, it requires rebuilding. And then, you know, kind of the... The flip side of looking at that is that w- what we signed up for when we won the RFP was addressing all of that deferred maintenance over time, which which essentially was a list of everything on every site, on each of the sites there. So we have a lot of work to do, and it's large-scale stuff because you don't just onesie z here and there fix absolutely everything. It's just easier and Better to do them, do these projects in larger ch- chunks. So we have to get planning and permitting approval to um, do what we want to do. And with the federal government or any local government or you know, in this day and age, that's that's not a, a fast process. Um, the good thing that we have going for us is that the Park Service has publicly. You know, they published materials that align with what we want to do that says, you know, based on their treatment guidelines, they won't want to do the same thing. So hopefully it's relatively straightforward, but it's still longer than a two-month process. So we haven't gotten into doing a ton of the, the big and exciting stuff, but what we have done – is you know take over operations make some small investments in um or not not so small investments in kind of infrastructure like um you know upgrading elements of the driving ranges and doing some drainage work and and other things that aren't totally glamorous but make a big difference um and and hopefully soon we'll get our approvals and get to move on on the big stuff
0: yeah, You've got to do something while you're waiting. You can't just be running to stand still. Um, yeah. From a professional's perspective, what are, if a city didn't have, or if a county or a state park wanted to upgrade their course but didn't have, you know, large sums of money, 10 million, couldn't put $10 million into a, a 18 hole course what are some of the smaller things that you you know everything is site specific I, I grant you that but kind of theoretically what are some smaller things that you think you know make a can make a better course can yeah present I mean, good golf without having to spend or raise fees to a point that all of a sudden it's something foreign yeah
1: so i mean i, I like you said, there are lots of answers, but a couple of easy things are giving people space to play, you know, especially at at courses where, you know, there's long grass or, or tree, you know, choked by trees or whatever it might be, just kind of providing people the space to, you know, get around a course without losing a ton of balls, um, that doesn't apply everywhere, obviously like it wouldn't apply to use Potomac as it exists right now. I mean, you can't lose a the ball there if you try. Um, so, so it's, it's not everywhere, but I mean, certainly cutting back on, you know, trees to a point where you have a reasonable playing corridor, which will help grow grass, um, and just generally improve conditions, things like that, you know, widening, you know, fairways or, you know, just kind of fixing mowing lines so that, it better relates to the features on the ground, that stuff can be relatively inexpensive and make a big difference from a golf course perspective that, I mean, I don't think you really even have to think about it totally from a golf course perspective to think about what to do with municipal courses. Um, A lot of it, if you, if you take a look at like some of the successful places around the country um, involves the, you know, kind of the feel of the place what, Creating a place that people want to be, and and I think some of that can be the cachet of the golf course, like Winter Park down in Florida. It's got a really cool little golf course um, now, but they also have created a fun place to hang out, so it goes hand in hand. Um, you know, Goat Hill out in um, Oceanside, California, that is – a pretty severe little piece of land for a golf course and the golf course is cool, but I wouldn't call the golf course necessarily the draw. The draw is hanging out there and it's just a, it's just a fun place to be outside where they bring in, you know, food trucks and just have a very welcoming, you know, culture that makes people want to be there. And I think figuring out how to do that is, is the key around which you can then start doing other things that, you know, get people into the golf
0: too. Okay. That's, I'm starting to, to like this, the vibe of the place more. That's, that's something that's not tangible. That doesn't go over well with the accountants downtown, but that's, (laughs) you know, if I
1: don't know, I don't think that stuff is even that expensive in the, in the long run. You know what, what you're doing is, I mean, like at, at goat hill or, you know especially i mean they're really just connecting into the local community and bringing other elements of the community into the golf course i mean it, golf courses are pretty rare spaces in you know densely populated areas and that they feel open and and different than you know they're they're a true park and so just being in these spaces has a lot of value and so it's it's exposing people to what we all love about about the the spaces and, and and golf which is that you get to spend time out in a more natural setting and um, and if you can bring yeah if you can bring you know good uh, elements of the community to those spaces you can um, you know get more people into it
0: Oh, I'll vouch for that. I, my boys joined me on a, a big course for the first time this summer, and just the first time we we hit off a, a little par three, our short hole. Just the way my little home course is set up is very accessible from the clubhouse. You can walk from the practice green. It's the fourth tee box. The course just come back around, and we'd kind of done that over and over again. And well, we finally went to the fifth hole, just a standard length par four. And to see kind of the the all struckness, it, it occurred to me, it's like from his little three foot and four foot tall perspectives, these kids to see that kind of well manicured green space out in you know we're out there when it's not busy, so we're at, at golden hour, at twilight, and to be out there when you can hear nature, the city's kind of quieting down. And just to be running free on some mowed grass, that was – you could see them just – it wasn't a roller coaster, but it might as well have been an amusement park, just kind of the, whoa, this is cool. Look at this, Um, which you wouldn't get at a – a city park, just with you know shin high grass that gets mowed once every two weeks on a, a regular cutting schedule. So that was that was a little bit of a light bulb moment for me. It's like okay, they they're gonna like this for reasons that I don't like it, and that's gonna be just fine. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, it, I, as I'm listening to you talk about where kind of the, and I'm thinking where are the cool vibes and where have the the big investments been made. I'm. I'm wondering if the if the if a how big a chunk of the market of public golf in the future will be things that have a a benefactor be it a, a certain organization or a a donor like for instance, you know, Memorial Park, which just hosted a, a PGA tournament, it was the—it's a publicly owned course that does 60,000 rounds a year, it's very very busy. But uh, and it, it, there was a huge investment made in it, but that was from some pi- private fundraising. You know, not altogether too different a model than what they did to Bobby Jones in Atlanta. You know, an urban core course that the city kind of got out of the go- out of the way and let private business. Um, do essentially what they have done at East Lake, I guess, as far as a, a business model. So um, do you have any thoughts kind of on that? And you're, you guys, I mean, you, you're you not dealing with the city council. The National Links Trust, is, you know, went to – you're uh, somebody between the consumer and the municipality that provides the experience, but not necessarily a – A for-profit, maximizing operator like a any management company.
1: Yeah, I think there's a big future in um, where I'd like to think that the nonprofit model for for these these golf courses makes a ton of sense. I mean, one of the reasons that you know these courses struggle um, is that like take Memorial Park where they're doing sixty thousand rounds a year, um, you know. That's a good business, right? But the way these courses are, you know, the courses like that have tended to be run is that whoever's running that business is taking the money from it and taking it elsewhere. It's a great asset for the community and the, you know, it's it's being it's it's not being reinvested in. But one of the the great things about the nonprofit model where, you know, with, like, National Links Trust, is if we're making any money, we're just putting it back into the courses. And um, and we think that that model at a place like... I mean, East Potomac is a lot like Memorial Park. Um, and Langston and Rock Creek should be. They just are a bit... They're so far down the path of deferred investment that we need to get them back to where they should be. But there's no reason why these courses can't be, you know, as... Well, first of all, they do make money now, and now the point is that we're going to make them better businesses, but then take that money that, we, that we're that we generating and keep putting it back into the courses and, and make sure that they don't follow the same trajectory as so many other places have, and like, like these places have in the past. Um, so I, I think that that's one way, you know, to think about this, certainly, hopefully, you know, we can be a model for how that would work.
0: Yes, I hopefully can. And, and as you're fleshing that out, I like that idea a lot more as a um, because, frankly, parks and recreation departments, there's a, a wide Array of ability when it comes to running golf courses and if if you get the you know, get a little bit of the bureaucracy out of the way or at least separate it from the consumer so yeah someone's not trying to squeeze out that last little bit of profit and then before they move on to something else or take the investment elsewhere it's that reinvestment that is really is the key
1: yeah I mean one thing and hopefully this is the case elsewhere but like we've talked about a lot there's so many people who Feel a connection to these golf courses, and, and it, it maybe only comes out when there's a threat to them. You know, um, it comes out publicly, but people really care about, um, you know, the entry points to golf because they share that that's where they discovered a love for the game, or you know, or they just understand the the, the role and the importance of courses like this in, you know, the ecosystem of golf, and. <clears throat> I mean, uh, we've seen it here with, with the DC courses. I mean, people want to be a part of making those places better. And it's almost like being a, an owner of, of the Green Bay Packers or something like that, where, like, if given the chance, people will, you know, be a shareholder in the Packers, you know...
0: Yeah, there's a waiting there's, list. <laughs> ...to
1: the community, right? right. Like, it's and, and I think people... Feel like if they can make it, help make a difference with these these community assets, they will. And um, maybe that in, instead of having the, I mean, once courses get to a certain state, right? Like sometimes it does require a big infusion of money to address that deferred investment. But like once you're at that level, that you you know you're where you need to be, I think there's a pretty you know, sustainable model where it's, it's, it's operated like a community asset, but something that is dedicated just to golf and not to, you know, like the, the difficult part of a, of a parks and rec department is there's priorities all over the place and deciding to spend money on the golf course is a decision that is taking money out of some other priority and that's a difficult situation whereas if you're kind of operating it as a standalone like public utility right but it's but that budget isn't shared elsewhere it's just dedicated to the course then that might be a more sustainable model you know where it's it's like that it's it's in between being you know a true municipal thing and something more private but that um you know shares elements of
0: both Right. Uh, yeah, defining what a community asset is is going to be I think key going forward. Speaking of assets and entry points, one of my favorite kind of hidden stories in golf is your is your project is Schoolhouse 9. You know, I, I encountered that I think from Tom Coyne's uh podcast years a couple of years ago with no the no laying up guys and just kind of highlighting what that unique how unique it was and how cool it was um and it catches a lot of the vibe that if it could be transferred if it could be bottled up and transferred it'd solve a lot of the problems that i'm bugging you about right now so um take a few minutes and and tell us about what schoolhouse nine is how it came about and and kind of what its legacy has been since it got up and running.
1: Yeah. Um, Schoolhouse Nine is a nine-hole par-three course um, in a little town called Sperryville, Virginia, which is right up against the um, Shenandoah National Park. So it's got a beautiful mountain backdrop. Um, it's not a big place at all. It's Sperryville is a, te- a, a little – you know the downtown streetville which is actually very close to the golf course is is one street with um i don't know maybe 15 to 20 uh houses mas- you know that that are businesses that um you know kind of exist right there and so it's it's a, it is a very small place but it gets a lot of traffic from people from DC going out to the mountains um it's an hour hour and a half from the city um and, and the owner of the property, this guy Cliff Miller, a huge golfer, um, had just moved back to the area um, from San Francisco. He grew up um, with, with his family, um, owning the land there in Sperryville, and his parents still live there. Um, and he was, he was basically coming home and wanted to start uh, a life in Sperryville – he started with his first project was turning the family house into a bed and breakfast. Um, they owned an old schoolhouse, um, in the area which they turned into an antique shop and, and bar and restaurant. Um, in addition to kind of renting out some rooms to local businesses and then, you know, I don't know if this was in the grand plan from the start, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was. Uh, Cliff turned his attention to the land right outside of the, school, the old schoolhouse, um, which was about 25 acres, and had the idea that he wanted to turn it into a, a nine-hole par three course. And I think what's really cool about it is, I mean, the land started out as land grazed by farm animals, um, and and I think we did this, that the goal was to make it not feel so far from that when the course was done, but just to have a really cool, you know, uh, natural feeling course with a great set of greens. Um, but otherwise like it's not that far off of field golf, you know, it's got, it's got a, it's got irrigation around the greens and that's it. Everything else, um, you know, changes with the seasons and the course can play really firm and fast or, you know, a little wet if it, if it's just rained. And, um, and if it's dry, it's brown. If it's, you know, rainy, it's green and that sort of stuff. Um, and I don't know. I just I, I, I think it's so cool. It's just a it's just a great place that reflects its location really well. And and hopefully it's just a lot of fun for people to play
0: I love the idea. I'm, there's a thought that I can't let go of that golf's future, at least in the cities is a smaller footprint. Uh, So I'm encouraged to hear how small, you know, about 25 acres, um, you know, that, that's something with uh, I'm a realtor by trade. So that's the prices of land, land use planning, those sorts of things. That's something I keep a pretty close eye on, uh, and our realtor association here does. so I'm wondering if one of the ways that we keep golf in the cities, you know, if uh, if full-size, you know, 250-acre yeah. golf courses come under pressure from environmental regs, water usage, or scarcity, um, just whatever, that that's a way to kind of bring it in. Um, there's more than one 18-hole course I can think of around here that I think would be – you could find nine great holes pretty easily and right. you know maybe repurpose. Um, so one, I guess I wanted to get your thoughts on sort of moving the pieces. You, you mentioned that they added a driving range after the fact at um, some point at East Potomac. I, I know that that's uh, – you know, for operators, that can be a cache – can very much be a cache center to offset some of the other stuff. Can can golf get smaller? Um, do you th- I think do you- so.
1: Yeah. Um. Absolutely. I mean, first of all, just like lessons from the schoolhouse nine is just how many people, you know, I could take any person in my family out there, any non-golfer, and people love it because it's it's a pretty setting and totally non-threatening from a golf perspective. Um, and easy to get around in a short amount of time if you're not interested in spending four hours on a golf course. Um, so it's really friendly for beginners and I think kind of opens up the universe of people who can use the given, you know, the space. So it's, it's all kind of lining up for that future in which there's just more competition for, um, you know, land use, uh, get more, more participation for, you know, the, the square, you know, piece of ground. Um, but I mean, and we're, we're kind of taking a little bit of that with the DC, um, you know, development of the DC courses. Rock Creek was originally a, um, an 18 old course was kind of on the shorter end. Um, and, then part of the course was chopped off by the construction of Military Road through Rock Creek Park, and it became just this kind of awkward um, executive length course, which isn't bad in – in um, yeah, I, I love a lot of uh, executive length courses. I think it's great. But the way it came about made it awkward. Uh, basically, longer holes were split into two, and there's – I mean, the front nine has – five five par threes or something like that but three or four of them are 200 yards and <laughs> uphill the postage stamp greens and it's like man this is this is serious it's not that's not beginner golf <laughs> no so it doesn't really function well for for that purpose and it doesn't function well for somebody who's out there looking to play like your quote-unquote regulation length course so it's kind of in an awkward spot Well what, what we've what we've hit on is our our plan forward is to basically make nine really great holes. And it's lucky that we can tie that back to the original William Flynn design there, which was cool. And I think the golf that nine holes is going to be excellent. And then with the space left over, we're going driving range and a par three course. And and I think this gets to, you know, a different element of your point, which is basically that not only is the, you know, the footprint of golf probably needing to get smaller but also the time footprint of golf, you know, there's pressure on that too. And, you know, around a city, it's just that much more, you know, of a thing a lot of the time. Um, you're trying to squeeze in golf around a bunch of other things that you're doing. Right. And, and so having elements like that you can play in two hours or less or, you know, or way less than that um, is really tr- attractive, I think. And certainly something we're thinking about as, as we you know, move forward with this.
0: Well, it, you're giving me hope. You're giving me all kinds of hope that municipal golf is, can find its footing, in, not just in special cases, uh, but that can, you can find it all over the country, all over the world, really. I mean, it's uh, the Scotland model is nice, but it, it's not ever present. I don't know if you are aware of what's going on. Australia is having a, a nice little tiff right now over Moore Park. Yeah. Uh, literally right now, and that's been people have been up in arms, both sides, and. Um, You know, that's a – before sort of the COVID boost that we got this year, when golf became – you know, kind of had its renaissance amongst just the general public, um, you know, there were more than just a few isolated cases that, you know, even municipal courses, places that were losing population, losing tax base. All of a sudden, it was a liability, and, you know, chopping off nine holes or selling it to uh, someone else – you know what the, there aren't those aren't necessarily decisions that you get mad about because you, if you just look at the numbers or look yeah. at the look at the the way the community values it uh, sometimes that's the right call but it just seemed to be momentum seemed to be picking up in that direction so I'm glad to hear
1: yeah, uh, yeah I don't just to finish your point I think one of the things that some of that might be inevitable right like it, there's there's nothing wrong with wanting more people to use a a piece of ground, but being able to preserve golf as an element of that, I think is, is really important. And that gets us to that idea that, yeah, maybe nine holes, but, but building a whole host of ways to enjoy the area around the course, um, that's more accessible to the public is kind of that compromise. That makes a lot of sense. You know, I, it's, I don't want to get rid of golf courses that are well located. Um, you know, they're so important. But if the decision is between no golf, you know, and development into something totally uh, totally separate, and nine holes or a par three course and a driving range or all of those options, I think they're really good and can even help expose more people to it in the in the long run.
0: Uh, that's, that's always going to be a good thing. Uh, we'll get you out of here on a couple of things. Are you working on anything cool that you want to promote or, or, uh, you want people to know about that it's going to be coming soon attractions? Uh, really the, the DC courses are taking
1: up 150% of my time. So, uh, you, you know, Christmas
0: is coming up, right?
1: <laughs> I don't know. No, I seen that far ahead. Here, like. Um, Yeah. But uh, no, that, that's the thing. I mean, if, if anybody is interested in getting involved, um, you know, they can go to nationallinkstrust.com and learn a ton about the project. And like I said, we're a nonprofit, so we rely on philanthropy and, and, um, you know that that's how we're going to get this stuff done. So um, any any way that people want to contribute uh, is is very welcome.
0: Oh, and check your uh, show notes. There'll be links to the trust that you guys do. I think some auctions now and then. There are all sorts of merchandise. Uh, really, some really cool, really high quality uh, stuff that is up for sale. Uh, that's all just fundraising. It's basically just all fundraising material. Well, Michael, thank you so much for your time tonight. This uh, is—I'll get you out of here on this one. Uh, Everybody's vaccinated. The COVID has gone away. It's safe, and all of a sudden you get a a hall pass for forty-eight or seventy-two hours to go get your sanity back. But you got to go play golf. Where are you going?
1: (laughs) You know. If only 48 or 72 hours, I think I'm I'm um, I'm headed down to Mid Pines and Pine Needles and gonna post up there for a bit. Uh, I I can't think of any better places to play a bunch of golf in a short amount of time than than out there. And there's special places and it's a good time of year to go there. Not too crowded, but still can get some good weather. And yeah, I'll take that. Man, after my own heart.
0: I can't thank Mike enough for taking the time to speak with me. He makes it easy to root for the East Potomac Project to succeed. As you heard, this is a passion project for him, something personal, something special. If you haven't yet, please check out the National Links Trust website and consider donating or purchasing merchandise from them, which will all help support their mission. There are links in your show notes to make it easy for you. There's a lot to digest from our conversation. If you're trying to glean lessons from the East Potomac project that might apply to where you live, as I'm doing. The concept of a non-profit or not-for-profit entity competing in the golf course operations space is something I'd not really considered until now, and I'm going to have to think through a little further before I can make a, an informed judgment. But with that, and those lingering thoughts, I thank you for stopping by for this episode of the Blind Shots podcast. Head over to the Apple podcast and leave a rating and review for the show. Each time someone leaves a five-star rating and review for this podcast, the pace of play on the PGA Tours West Coast Swing gets two full minutes faster. I hope you've enjoyed what you heard here today. If you didn't like it, I can't do anything about it now, but I promise I will try to do better next time. And I hope you'll join me again next time here on the Blind Shots Podcast. Most importantly, of course, I hope you're being safe and smart and staying sane out there. It's daydreaming and planning season, so if you haven't routed your golf itinerary, through 2021 yet spend a little time on that this week i've spent so much time thinking my way around golf courses that i want to play this year that i almost need to clean my clubs golf season will be here soon enough it'll be right on top of us and then we won't be able to get enough of it so stick to your training routine do decide to go for it and take dead aim Connected to a dot matrix printer. I printed out a term paper one time. It took an hour and a half (laughs) of (laughs) continuous printing.